0: It's all about the people on the shop floor. It's really the people who are in the trenches. It's not the PhDs. You know, it's, it's really the people who are coming in every day and making machines work.
1: Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 85. Today, we're talking about educating the new collar workforce. Sarah Boisvert joins us for this episode. She has a long history in the manufacturing world, and she started her career in lasers, which fed into 3D printing, and now she's helping close the skills gap as the founder of both the Fab Lab Hub and the New Collar Network. That's not even the full extent of what she's up to, so here are three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we'll get some definition around what the New Collar workforce is, as well as Sarah's background. Second, we'll discuss the programs she's involved in that are helping prepare the next generation of manufacturing leaders. We'll discuss everything from gamifying training and skills development to the number one skill that manufacturers say they need. Finally, we'll talk about how she's created the programs and curriculums and what the future of education might look like. As always, if you want to access any resource we mentioned in this episode, and there are quite a few of them in this one, make sure to head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com 85. And if you're enjoying this show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I actually just learned that you could leave a five-star rating at Spotify. It's super easy. Just go to the podcast of your choosing, and there is a button where you can leave a five-star rating and review. If you want to get to Apple Podcasts, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And if you want to get to Spotify, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify would greatly appreciate those reviews. That's what gets us on the board and more people listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. And on that note, let's get this episode rolling. It's time to meet up with Sarah Boisvert. All right, Sarah, it is great to have you here. And we're going to jump right in to the first question. You're the founder of the New Collar Network. How do you describe this new collar movement, if you will, as if we're hanging out, having a drink with one another?
0: Well, I wish that I had coined the term, but it was actually uh, a comment by Ginny Rometty, the former CEO of IBM. And she wrote an open letter to a number of newspapers when Mr. Trump was elected. And she said we're thrilled, and I'm paraphrasing here, we're thrilled that you wanna bring back manufacturing, but we don't want those old school jobs, we want new color jobs. And I just thought that embodied what is happening today in manufacturing, but also in all fields, and all of the blue-collar jobs have become digital. And so our organization, the New Color Network, creates pathways for people to get those engaging, fun, uh, well-paying new color jobs, often without a college degree.
1: I love that succinct example. And we're going to dive into that a bit more as we get into the interview. But to say the least, you've had a fascinating career that's led you to this point. So Sarah, we want to get to know you a little bit first. And and one of the first things that jumps out is uh, your your portion of your career that you spent at a uh, Potomac Photonics, and as I understand it, you invented a key piece of laser technology. You and your company invented a key piece of laser technology for manufacturing, correct?
0: Well, my partner did. My partner, my business partner, invented a miniaturized excimer laser. He was actually one of the first two people to build big excimer lasers, which are used in industrial manufacturing, particularly in the semiconductor industry. Uh, But he had this idea for miniaturizing the laser and taking it from the size of a coffin down to the size of a PC. Mm. And um, my background was in market segmentation strategy. um, And so I would take his technologies and turn them into products. And so my expertise is really in identifying a market and then making what David out from Intel calls the complete product. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was a great uh, opportunity. Uh, we also built laser machine tools uh, for micro manufacturing and developed processes for uh, micro machining nitinol for the first stents for Johnson and Johnson, as well as a whole lot of medical devices you hope you never need. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was. It was. It was just a a wonderful company. They are still going. Potomac is uh, now uh, run by uh, I, um, uh, I think of as a young man who um, uh, we hired as a junior salesperson years ago, and he's now uh, CEO. Mike Adelstein is now uh, uh, president and CEO of the company and has really done an extraordinary job <clears throat> of taking the technologies that we started with and, and really adding a lot of other uh, methodologies to uh, really create a, a contract manufacturing business that focuses heavily on microfluidics. They do a lot of things, but he he's, has made an enormous impact on the manufacture of microfluidic devices. So yeah.
1: One thing I love about that story is you talk about, hey, your partner invented the technology, but you leveraged your strength of segmenting that market, right? So it seems like a, a perfect partnership there. I have a couple of questions about this, but one that popped into my mind since you were on the market segmentation side. Was there a market you ended up serving that surprised you that you're like, huh, I didn't expect this market to pop out?
0: Well, definitely the laser for LASIK. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we knew that, that laser micromachining was, was a great opportunity for this kind of uh, deep into the UV wavelength. So we were at 193 and 248 nanometers. Um, so pretty much everything absorbs and you can make very, very small features down to a micron. You can do less than a micron, but it's hard to be repeatable. Uh, but it was... Um, interesting because people had been using very large eczema lasers and when lasik first came out you know decades ago you had to sit very still um because they did it all in one blast and but Mm -hmm. I i knew about lasik and and i knew that our laser didn't have enough power to do that and one day um randy fry called me uh from from autonomous technologies and said I, i'm interested in your laser and i immediately said to him oh we don't have enough power and he said no you don't understand and he had gotten a an sbir from the air force and he had developed a tracking system so that you could track the eye and people didn't have to sit still and so then you can use a small laser because you could focus down and move the laser with the the tracking system. It was originally developed for um, uh, the tracking of Scud missiles, what the Air Force interest was. And and so suddenly, because that technology was available, it allowed our laser to to be functional in in that setting. Um, The Air Force also paid for an SBIR-2 where we were able to miniaturize the gas supply and eczema lasers, as many of your listeners know, uh, a key component that makes it laser is fluorine gas, which is, you know, not the easiest thing to deal with. And the idea of having ophthalmologists, you know, have to have full tanks of fluorine. Typically you had two, three big tanks of gas. One of which was fluorine uh, was really a barrier to market entry. And Mm -hmm. as you, Um, So market segmentation is really about creating products that are specific to a market so that the end user has absolutely no uh, 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 barriers. I mean, they're ready to adopt and they stay loyal to you because you meet all of their needs. And so the miniaturization that my partner, Dr. Paul Christensen, was able to achieve really allowed for... um, the market to be available to us
1: yeah so from from missiles to lasik i think these are a couple uh applications our in uh, our audience can can certainly understand you know I, I think my biggest question from this early experience is how did this early experience shape your career today as you reflect back to some of the earlier parts of your career well we
0: you know we were doing this in, in the eighties. And so mm-hmm. you can imagine when you uh, needed to hire people who were operators and technicians, uh, you really didn't have uh, training programs. <clears throat> and so we had to do in-house training. Uh, the company has done some uh, work with the community college of Baltimore County on, on, on uh, two year degrees, uh, and it really uh, made me realize that, particularly in, in the contract manufacturing side, but also when you were building lasers, that it's, it's all about the people on the shop floor. It's really the people who are in the trenches. It's not the PhDs. You know, it's, it's really the people who are coming in every day and making machines work. Um, and following QC and following uh, procedures that are really allowing for uh, the quality products that, are, that you have to produce in that industry. You can't have a laser fail in the middle of, of eye surgery. And mm-hmm. so uh, the demands are, are really stringent. And it was, you know, we we had to train our own people. And so it, it, it really... Um, it was very uh, important to me that we had good staff and uh, as as my career advanced and we sold the company and and I, I was consulting for MIT in the Media Lab and the Fab Foundation, I started to see that many of the companies that were in my industry were suffering the same things where they... They just couldn't find people. I mean, today it's easy to find an engineer but mm-hmm. boy, try and find a CNC machinist. You know, there's there's another whole ball game. And we've convinced everyone that they have to go to college. Um, and so the people that we used to be able to more easily find at community colleges or through uh, trade schools um, were no longer available.
1: And I'm excited to talk to you about what you're doing for the workforce situation here in a second, but I feel like there's one other career question I have to ask you because we've been talking lasers, but you also made the jump to 3D printing and additive manufacturing as well. So tell me about that transition going going to that part of your career.
0: Um, well, actually the first time that I uh, uh, did anything with, with, with uh, 3D printing, was we had read a paper, I read a paper by Chuck Hall um, on stereolithography. So this would have been, you know, like 1987. And we played a little bit with what could UV do. Uh, Chuck at the time was using uh, gas lasers, um, not in the UV, but still gas lasers. Uh, Solid state had not gotten to the point where uh, it had enough power or reliability Now, of course, all of the 3D printers or most of the 3D printers are using solid state lasers, which goes to show again, not to digress, but to go to show again that a technology really only um, can come to fruition and get to mainstream markets when all of the things around it, all of the the essential items are are in place, and it was really the solid state lasers that enabled three D printing to uh, take off in in manufacturing and other kinds of uh, areas, other kinds of applications. Um, and it was when I was uh, consulting for MIT that I met uh, people from the enable. Project. I don't know if you know. Enable. Um, they're a, a nonprofit that uh, volunteers that three D prints hands and donates them to children and adults with no hands. And uh, we were looking at um, we were looking at some miniaturization of the hands at, for smaller children in other countries like India and some of my interns were redesigning the hands and and that was kind of how how i really started to spend much more time uh with the 3D printing
1: excellent and and i'm excited to get into the meat of this conversation now and, and learning more about like fab lab hub and america makes a lot of these things that you're up to now but i think a basic question to make sure our audience gets the right foundation to start is what is a fab lab
0: a fab lab is a digital fabrication laboratory um, that was the brainchild of Dr. Neil Gershenfeld in the in the Media Lab at MIT, and he founded the Center for Bits and Atoms. Uh, and uh, there are now about two thousand fab labs around the world. The Fab Labs um, are all different, but they are all associated with MIT. They're not funded by MIT, so their mission mm-hmm. is slightly different depending upon the community they're coming from. Uh, they're different than makerspaces in that, uh, because, well, the connection to MIT and to Neil um, and the community that we have. are mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. not. A standalone um, out there by yourself. You have a community that you can learn from and and follow best practices. Uh, We have a big annual meeting um, and they're all over the world. And so the requirement is that you have the five tools of digital fabrication. So um, 3D printing, laser cutting, CNC machining, uh, microelectronics, and uh, vinyl cutting for not just for t-shirts, but also for uh, wearables and uh, uh, flexible electronics. And it's all tied together by CAD and CAD design. And uh, uh, Neil likes to say that the fab labs are a place where you can make almost anything because you have more than one tool. If you have just one tool, you know there are limitations. 3D printing is not the choice for everything.
1: And tell me about the hub, right? Because if I remember right, I could be wrong on this, but the fab labs kind of operated a little independently, right? And what you did with the hub, you helped create some maybe uniformity is the the right word for, it. but can you describe, let's say, what what that added to the fab labs?
0: I was particularly interested in workforce training. So what we brought to the community was some alternative training programs. Neil offers a uh, a very advanced uh, course through that academy, which is twenty weeks and is pretty tough to get through. It's it's a, a pretty demanding course, and it covers all five of the technologies and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was seeing the movement towards. Uh, more and, and more um, customized training and in 2017, and that's this book, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I interviewed, because I wanted to know more about this field, I interviewed 200 employers on what were the skills they needed for operators and technicians. And as I looked at that, I I came to realize that 20 weeks was too long. Um, A two-year degree was too long. And uh, I hit upon, I got done the research and I thought, well, what they want is what we do in Fab Labs. They want hands-on training. They want problem solving. But we really want something short and sweet. To the point, affordable for the student, affordable if the employer is paying for it, and um, and skill specific. And so, I basically broke down all of um, the training to uh, shorter uh, uh, lengths of time. So um, the average length is four to six weeks, and the average cost is two hundred and fifty dollars. And so, I had a lab to, Fab de- Lab Hub really was to develop those programs and yeah. test them here. And I couldn't afford to do it in Cambridge. So I moved it to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I live in a rural state that's affordable.
1: <laughs> I'm glad you provided the additional color to that because I knew my my initial impression of that was slightly off. But this ties back into some of the things we talked about earlier with, you know, enabling the work for, you know, fill, filling a lot of these jobs that aren't currently filled right now. And and for a quick aside, for those listening to the audio, the book that Sarah held up was the New Collar Workforce. I will have a link to that in the show notes page. But, you know, what, one of my questions is, as you have this, this training program, if you will, one thing I think you mentioned in one of our initial conversations was that one of the key challenges that manufacturers are having is people that have the problem solving skill. That's one of the things you're ultimately trying to teach. So how does this program help with teaching problem solving in these concentrated areas that you mentioned?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I was on a panel not long ago um with someone from Ford who said that you couldn't teach problem solving or critical thinking. And when I look at MIT and school engineering schools like MIT um, everything is based on problem solving, the famous problem set. So students hate, but I've never met an MIT student that couldn't solve a problem, whether or not it was in their field. And so our whole program is based upon project based learning. I, when I, got, you know, I never had intended to create the training programs. I, I intended to to use them, and uh, when I got done, I. Thought okay, we need something short, and I discovered the digital badges that IBM and Mozilla had created years ago, and and that it has an international standard, so that the employer or the school administrator has some sense of uh, verification that the student actually has the skill that they say they have, and so when, when I got done uh, the research. And I found the digital badge uh, programs that uh, I I really thought fit the bill. Uh, I thought, oh, I can just go and buy some certifications and almost like going to the library. Instead of signing the students books, you assign them a course and then we could issue the badges based on that. And I looked around and most of the uh, training programs I found were something where people watched a video or read a book and then took a written test, and I had no evidence that people had ever run the machine, and and I thought, well, that's that doesn't work, <laughs> you know. I want to, as an employer, I want to know they've actually run the machine, and and then on top of that, um, I looked at it and thought, well, there's nothing that shows here that they can solve a problem. So our entire program. Is based upon the student, and our program goes from high school to uh, employed workers looking for reskilling. And our entire program starts with the student identifying a problem. And your audience in manufacturing will know that's half the battle, right? Knowing what is the problem, why did the machine fail? Why did the parts yes. come out the way I thought it was going to come out? Why is the machine not functioning? In the in the case of three D printing, we're often uh, customer service for new companies, uh, new new uh, vendors is a new concept. And uh, you look at all of those things, and And I thought, I, we need people to identify a problem, whether it's at work, play, sports, or home. And then they care about it. Then they care that their problem is solved. And uh, they go through a process on... Um, through the elements of the course um, that allows them to iterate their solution. Um, typically, they come up with solutions that will never complete in the six weeks or four weeks or whatever it is. Uh, we typically have to wheel it down to something that is achievable and mm-hmm. uh, manageable. Uh, but it's amazing to see how people can go through that process. And it tells me a lot as an employer because when I look at their portfolios, which are stored in our learning management system, we use Blackboard, uh, when I look at the portfolio, I can see how they solve the problem. And I can see, because they they have to demonstrate the steps in the photograph or video, however they want to, to show it. Um, but they demonstrate their thought process, and I can tell whether they cut corners or whether they cheated. You know, I had someone one time who had gears, and they didn't turn, so he just made holes in the enclosure, <laughs> and that's not quite the point. You know, so you can really learn a lot from the portfolios, and I think that's um, a critical part of of our program is that people can apply for a job and point on their resumes to here's my portfolio and then some you know um, an hr person can can look at it and say oh well this tells me much more than just a piece of paper that's a certificate or a degree
1: we'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor Are you looking for an industry event that's the true intersection of today's advanced manufacturing technologies? Well, that event is IME West, taking place April 12th through 14th, 2022 in Anaheim, California. And here are three of the reasons why I think you should join me at this show. First, you can connect with top suppliers and technology vendors. This is the spot to connect with folks that are ready to help you with your product development needs. Second, build your knowledge. IME West features everything from industry deep dives to emerging technology insights. They're educational offerings for everyone, whether you're in engineering or over in the C-suite. Finally, grow your network. Connect with manufacturing leaders, subject matter experts, and more at the largest annual gathering of the advanced manufacturing community. Whether you're in automation, medtech, plastics, or manufacturing design, people from all of these spaces will be at IME West. And yes, I'm excited to be attending as well. If you want to join me in Anaheim, California, April 12th through 14th, then head over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West for more information and to register today. I hope to see you there. And now back to today's episode. That's awesome. It's almost like an artist that has their portfolio. This is like a portfolio of, of problem solving, if you will. And one, one thing that I can relate to with that as an engineer, you know, I haven't really been an engineer for a decade, really. I've been doing sales, and marketing and podcasting, but I always tell people the main thing I learned in engineering school was how to solve problems. And I think it's so cool that your program for, let's say, the skilled trades is helping develop that same skill, that core skill.
0: And it's really interesting because people get so excited about it. You know, it's like, so we had a, uh, we did a boot camp for the state of New Mexico's uh, workforce uh, department. And we had a guy who had a tractor and he had broken one of the parts and he couldn't, it was an old tractor. He couldn't get the part anymore. And after, and this is a guy who was 50 years old, had been laid off as a mechanic for the ski resort here in town. And um, was not a computer guy; had never done CAD. And in two weeks, he was designing threaded parts, which you know is no small feat, to fit into um, the the uh, to replace the part that that was broken. And he was just so motivated because now he yeah. had what he needed, and it, it it's really gratifying. You know, just see the difference. And it's so much more fun to teach it. I mean, um, I, I can't believe that, you know, I'll get done a lecture and I think, oh, God, who wants to hear me talk? You know, of course, I've heard the talk a million times and people love my talks, but it's not nearly as much fun as when you're playing with stuff.
1: Sure. I, I love that story about the tractor, because I think when, when we initially chatted, you mentioned you had three students do something around like a wildfire audio sensor. Am I, am I? can you go into that one a little bit more? I thought that one was pretty fascinating as well.
0: Well, those are three U.S. Department of Labor registered
1: apprentices. Got it. Okay.
0: The way that I support my nonprofit is we have a little contract manufacturing company. So Fab Lab Hub is actually a little commercial Fab Lab uh, manufacturing group. And um, it also teaches our apprentices uh, real-world manufacturing problems and dealing with customers and deadlines and communicating with customers who don't know anything about manufacturing and are trying to, to uh, succeed with with our non-technical people. So it, it really is a wonderful program and all of the proceeds fund our, our education. and. The um, I have three U.S. Department of Labor registered apprentices, which um, people today don't know what that is, um, because we've lost um, so much of the apprentice programs. Um, they're still heavily in the in things like construction. Um, and it's you know, Germany and Europe still have really robust apprenticeship programs. and it's a great, great opportunity for people. So um, the the USDOL requires that the apprentices uh, are paid, I think it's two thirds of the starting salary of what they still call a journeyman um, after all these decades or all these centuries, I guess. And uh, so they're... In our lab, they're making 40000 a year, and I'm in a very poor state. Um, they're making 40000 a year, and we'll go to 60000 once they complete the program. It's one year. The framework had to be approved by USDOL, and I started with a framework that America Makes had developed with the Urban Institute and Youngstown State and a bunch of other entities. And uh, but what we did was dropped in for the education component, which the employer pays for um, instead of it being through the college. It's our digital badges. And so our nonprofit is um, a part of the MIT FabLob network. So we do have a good connection, but we're not actually, um, you know, higher education. We're, We're not a college.
1: And and you've mentioned that these digital badges provide like that accreditation um, in in some ways, right? Uh, another question I have around that: Do the digital badges? Does it kind of gamify the process a little bit? Are people like, oh, I want to learn this skill next? Does that happen as a result of it? Absolutely.
0: Um, people take our intro to digital design, and we start everybody with Tinkercad, um, which you can do an incredible amount with. Actually, those threaded parts I. Had actually two or three students who all designed threaded parts that had to screw together um, in Tinkercad. Um, But they get so excited. Um, If you start on something like Fusion or Rhino or SolidWorks, it's such a steep learning curve that they get discouraged. And so this way we're able to get people up to speed really quickly. They're able to make something. And the next thing they say is, when can I learn Fusion 360? Um, and halfway through our first class, they're all asking about what's the next thing. Um, so it, it, there is a, a a real element of gamification with the badges and, um, they're, you know, they're short enough that, um, in today's world, you know, you you may, you may start college and then, you know, stuff happens, your, something happens in your family and you have to quit school and you have nothing to show for it and you've paid a year of, of a lot of money Whereas here, you, you, you do something, you have something to show for it, assuming, you know, you, you do the work and you, and you pass, but um, it's basically pass-fail, you know, it's basically the, the project is, is how you get the badge. And it gives people portability. Um, it gives people a way to get into tech fields who I find never really knew that it was a career path <clears throat> and we saw that at Potomac actually in this book, which is a, um, a book. A, my first book people loved but the kids weren't reading it and I thought well they need video and so this book has augmented reality and it's a photography book of um, the people and, and people working in with these new technologies. And uh, they pop up and tell their story through the augmented reality, which is better than me telling it or them having to read it. And there's a, a guy in this book named John Ford who works for Potomac. And John, I think, was hired in around 2005. Um, hated school, <clears throat> but loved math and couldn't get into college, went to the community college, hated it. He didn't he liked hands-on learning. and that's not what they had. And so he uh, got a job at Potomac, he dropped out, got a job at Potomac as a laser operator, and uh, has been there now, I don't know, 20 years, 20 plus years. And um, what he always likes, he runs four labs, he's now an engineer. And he likes to say, you know, any job has a bad day. But how bad can the day be when I get to play with lasers all day?
1: <laughs> that is, uh, that is a very quotable line right there, and, a, and great motivation for the manufacturing space. By the way, the uh, one of the other books that Sarah's written, the one behind her, is "People of the New Collar Workforce." So, will also be linked up in the show notes. You know, a- as we're getting to the end of our conversation, I I have to ask, thinking ahead, you know, let's look five years out. Sarah, do you think we're moving in the right direction to? to let's say evolve education. I think you've mentioned before that you do feel education has lost its way a little bit. What's your prediction for 5 years out?
0: Well, in the 10 years before before covid, um there was an 11% decline in college enrollment. And so the kids are start and the parents who pay for it you know in a, in a lot of cases are starting to look at education. And unless you're in a STEM field, you know, unless you really are going to become an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, um, college does not necessarily uh, give you, uh, uh, does not necessarily ensure uh, a successful career economically. And I think that with these kids being digital natives, uh, they learn so much online. Um, you know, it's it's a different world. The world is really changing, and education has to change with it. And of course, COVID uh, just is accelerating that. Um, there is far more interest at the college level <clears throat> on certificates um, and uh, digital badges and short-term programs. I consult for the National Governors Association, and someone from Harvard told us, I was running some roundtables, that Harvard now issues more certificates than they grant degrees. And I read in the Wall Street Journal this year that they're actually thinking of taking the Harvard MBA and turning it into... A certificate program which is pretty startling you know but the world yeah. the world is just different and if the colleges don't get on board they're just going to go under they're not going to be able to survive i uh started a, a a conference in 2019 which unfortunately the things i was hoping would come out of it uh didn't happen because of covid it was in november of 2019 so I wanted to get an ongoing dialogue going, but we're starting it again in uh, May of this year, and it's called the New Color Workforce Summit. And what we talk about is like bring in people to really open the eyes of educators and policymakers and employers on what is actually happening and what are the programs out there that we can model. Um, and then in the afternoon we have roundtables and we ideate what are ideas we can take home and, and actually have action upon. You know, instead of just going to a conference and being inspired, how how can we how can we really take action in our communities? And I'm seeing uh, just a huge movement there. it's it's, it's here.
1: That's awesome. I mean, you've you've given us a ton of great examples from problem solving portfolios to how to what you're doing, to what Harvard's doing to evolve education. You know, I want to ask you how to get connected with connected with you and your programs. But first, is of all the ground we've covered today, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet?
0: I, I guess a little more about America makes. Um. And I would just say that, you know, I'm a laser girl. So the badges, I probably would have started with with lasers. But I was able, uh, with America Makes, to get some funding. And that was why our additive manufacturing badges were first. We have um, FDM and SLA. And uh, it was really through funding from America Makes that jump-started our program It's been a a really great relationship, and I think that uh, Josh Kramer, who runs their education and workforce department, um, has really taken a lead in the country on helping to bring this discussion into more areas and helping to get educators um, to see what, what the potential is.
1: I'm glad you filled in that last gap because Sarah, you are doing a ton for the industry right now. And I wanted to make sure we covered all the ground as, as we wrap up, what's the best way to connect with you and the programs you're involved with?
0: Uh, It's newcollarnetwork.com and uh, anytime anything comes in through our contact page, it gets uh, sent over to me from our media people. So um, that's always a good way to reach me. Uh, And it's collar like your your shirt. So Mm -hmm. that kind of collar with two L's.
1: Well, I will have a link to newcollarnetwork.com over at the show notes page, along with all of Sarah's books. And as we wrap today, Sarah, this has been a a fascinating conversation. Uh, Thank you for all the work you're doing for the industry. And uh, thank you for appearing here on Manufacturing Happy Hour.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Jay and the Arm Institute and IME West for making this interview possible. As always, you can access any resource we mention during these shows at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 84. That's the show notes page for this particular episode. And as we wrap up, you know, I know I just gave him a shout out. I actually gave him a couple shout outs. But hey, one last shout out to IME West for sponsoring the show. You're going to be able to find both Jay and myself there. We're both going to be speaking at that event. And if you're interested in attending one of the premier manufacturing events of the year, it's taking place April 12th through 14th in Anaheim, California. And to register to learn more about the event, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West to do all of that today. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there on your iPhone or on your desktop by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com iTunes. It'll take you straight there. It's easy to hit that five-star button, and your reviews don't need to be more than a couple sentences. And by the way, when I see those reviews, I love giving our listeners a shout-out on this show. So keep that in mind. We'd love to see you there. With that, that's a wrap for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again here at Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.